Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Tommy Sheridan. Tommy is a proud father, proud socialist and a former member of Scottish Parliament. You are a leading figure in negotiations to establish the Scottish Socialist Alliance in 1996, which then evolved into the Scottish Socialist Party in 1998. You became convener of the party in the same year and were elected to the Scottish Parliament in 1999. In 2006, you became joint convener of political party Solidarity, Scotland's socialist movement, a role which you went on to serve for 10 years. And in the run-up to the 2014 Scottish independence referendum, you led a pro-independence campaign under the banner Hope Over Fear. You co-authored A Time to Rage and Imagine, an outline of the principles of socialism for a modern era. You've been a radio and chat show host. You have degrees in politics, social research and law, and you've made countless television appearances, including being a housemate on Celebrity Big Brother. Most recently, you've been working as a columnist for major Russian news agency and radio broadcaster Sputnik. Tommy, it's an absolute honour to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Elliot. That was a hell of an introduction. <laughs> um, I'm out of breath. It's a hell of an introduction. The only problem is you started in about uh, 1997 there, so you, 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 you've, you've, you've missed out the hair years when I actually had a full set of hair, so uh, maybe we'll go on to them. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll need to go back and uh, cover your early years. I mean, I mentioned to you before we started, you did a, a talk at my old school probably now about 19 years ago, and... Um, there's a quote that I'll read. People may not remember exactly what you did or what you said, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And I have to say, I, re I remember vividly just thinking, my God, this guy's passion and, you know, uh, just intensity was just incredible. <laughs> I, I can only imagine that would have been around 2000, um, 2001 yeah. uh, uh -huh. or thereabouts. Um, and I can only imagine it would have either been a modern studies invitation because yeah. I'm very close to the Modern Studies Association and I used to get invited into a lot of schools to speak to modern studies classes and societies. Um, but also at that time, I was very embroiled in my second private members bill in Parliament. I had um, secured the abolition of pendants and warrant sales bill, which was fantastic. But I then moved on to free and healthy school meals. Okay. for all children um, in order to cut out the uh, horrible stigma that's attached to free school meals and also to try and tackle the obesity problem that we have in, in society yeah. and the uh, associated health problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a, a great campaign that took me across scores and scores of schools and, and, gen and generated huge support. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> ironically, it got voted down by the okay. Liberals and <laughs> Labour okay. uh, and the Tories. You'd expect the Tories to do it. The, the reason I say ironically is because nowadays uh, the Liberals and Labour going about, oh, we need free school meals. And I think, well, we're about 19 years too late, but there you go. It's uh, better late than never, you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just before we go back to your early years, where do you think your passion comes from? Oh, undoubtedly my mum, Elliot. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've conducted other interviews where I've talked about the influence of, of my mum. Um, she um, was very much an inspiration. Not that I recognised it at the time when I was growing up, but she was um, someone who left school without any qualifications. Mm -hmm. um, she was a hard worker. She used to hold down two and three jobs, cleaning jobs, worked in pubs. Um, but through her working in the, the bar trade, she began to uh, get involved in a trade union. 
Okay. Um, and when she got involved in the trade union, she was uh, became a shop steward, and she used to fight for the bar staff to get things like taxi fares, um, because in those days they never got their taxi fares home, even though they were working late. Okay. Then they were getting made to work overtime, but they weren't getting any overtime payments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once once a pub closes. Um, the staff then had to clean up and everything. So sometimes the pub closed, but the staff went away for an hour later, but they okay. don't get paid for that. So my mum got involved in a lot of that, and then she was very good at organising, um, so much so that they organised a big strike against the breweries, Tenant Caledonian, way back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Tenant Caledonian refused to recognise the union, so they wouldn't negotiate on wages and rates of pay. Uh, and my mum said, well, you know, we, we're, we're going to go and strike. And th- th- they laughed at her, basically, because... Their attitude was, don't be silly. You can't uh, put pressure on us. If people don't go to one pub, they'll go to another. Uh, you, you'll never <laughs> okay. be able to exert pressure on us. Uh, go and strike if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mum and the union, uh, they never picketed the pubs. They picketed the brewer. And, and they went to the brewer's gates. Mm-hmm. And in those days, the lorry drivers were on the union. <laughs> yeah. And they wouldn't cross the picket line. So within two days of striking, Tenant Caledonian caved down and recognised the union and my mum was very much at the heart of that. From that, TGWU then took her on as a full-time organiser. She then became involved in, in those days, what was called the Battered Wives Movement. Mm -hmm. Um, Nowadays, it's called Women's Aid. Uh, But in those days, um, the Battered Wives Movement was simply uh, a movement to try and get refuge for those that were victims of of domestic abuse. And my mum and others identified the problem with people saying, as they always did, oh, if you're getting abused, just leave. Mm-hmm. Why, why are you staying there? Mm-hmm. Um, oblivious to the problem of where do you go? Yeah. Um, because <laughs> exactly. invariably the, the man would own the home or, or would be the, the rent to pay or whatever. So it wasn't just as easy as just leave. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my mum managed to swing the TGWU behind the campaign and they helped to fund the first ever refuge for battered wives, and from there the movement be- began to develop. And as I say, it's now now known as Women's Aid. And uh, fortunately, a lot of victims of domestic abuse now have somewhere to go. I'm not saying it's easy, but, but they have somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. Through all of that, mm-hmm. I'm grown up, um, and my oh, mum, uh, yeah, okay. my mum said used to say to me that uh, I used to tell her I hated the unions because she was always going to a meeting. She was always going oh, out, right. ah, I hate the unions. And then she says, uh, I used to always say, I'm going to buy you a taxi when I grow up because she was always waiting in a taxi to go to <laughs> meetings. And the other thing I remember as a kid um, was my mum used to get phone calls uh, and it used to be from victims of domestic abuse. And I, I, I was petrified, Elliot, because these were women who were being beat up um, and they were calling my mum to come to help them. And I was mm. petrified that my mum was going to get beat up. Yeah, yeah. But she had the heart of a bloody line and, and <laughs> she, her attitude was they needed help and, and she was going to help them. That, I think, that sense of, of right and wrong and justice, um, fighting uh, against the Goliaths of the world, yeah. I think that was inculcated in me at, at an early age. Yeah. Um, and, and although I wouldn't have been able to articulate all that at 12, a 13, a 14 year old, mm-hmm. apparently, when I've met um, some ex-school um, students uh, of mine, um, we've been at some of the old Friends Reunited events, um, mm. 
and they've told me about how in modern studies classes I used to be fighting for this student and that student who would be <laughs> really? getting a, a bollocking about not doing their homework and all the rest of it. Now, I can't even remember these things, yeah, yeah. but apparently I was very, very opinionated at that age. Um, so obviously all these effects um, rub off um, yes. and I loved modern studies. It was, I, I mean, I generally didn't like school. Um, the only thing I liked about school was PE. I loved PE, I loved playing football, and I loved hanging about with my mates. But I hated English and I hated maths. Uh, I remember doing, for instance, uh, I remember doing Lewis Grassic uh, Gibbons' Sunset Song uh, in English, and I couldn't make head nor tail of it because obviously it was written in Scottish prose. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was, it was hard enough for me to read a book, never mind read a book in, in, in Scottish uh, traditional language. Mm. Uh, and I, I just, didn't like school, and then modern studies came along. And we were actually doing things that I was going home at night, and it was on the news, because we were doing okay. apartheid. Yeah, and yeah. what was apartheid all about? And then we would do American civil rights, and you would learn about Martin Luther King. You never learned about Malcolm X, unfortunately. But obviously, it was like a gateway. It was like pulling back the curtains. You could see the window, and then you could see further afield. Modern studies, mm -hmm. for me, took the scales off my eyes. Uh, and I studied, my special study was the uh, occupation of Ireland by, by Britain in, in the 70s. And I did my special topic on the, the Troops Out movement and things like that. So all of that began to make um, school became sensible. And, and my modern studies teacher was quite young and, and hip and trendy. And I used, used to speak to us as if we were mates rather than a, a, a teacher uh, a pupil relationship and that yeah. had a big big effect on me so hmm. I, I invariably when i was at school i didn't think i was going to do anything in education third year fourth year in parents meetings my i, I would tell my mum and dad i wanted to be a mechanic my, my uncle was a mechanic and i used to love the idea of working in cars and that's what i wanted to be and my mum and dad would come back for the the, the parents nights and the, the teachers would be saying, oh, he's setting his sights a bit low, he could go on to further education. And I'm like, I don't want, I want to leave school, I want to leave school. My <laughs> mates all left school at 16 and I wanted to leave school at 16. Yeah, yeah. And by the time I get to 16, <laughs> Elliot, I wanted to, I, I developed a hatred of the system. Really? Uh, I wanted to overthrow the system. I used to have <laughs> arguments with my sister because by that time, my sister Lynn, my eldest sister, she had uh, joined the army at an early age. Um, and uh, I used to have, incredible arguments over the table about uh, what was happening in Ireland and the legitimate war and the IRA mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. she was obviously um, arguing about well they, they shouldn't be killing um, people through terrorism and I'm saying well wait a wee minute they don't have access to armies and they don't have access to the same sophistry and equipment that mm -hmm. the British Army has that mm -hmm. they don't they're doing what they have to do uh, with, the, with, with the wherewithal that they've got and we used to have these big rows and all that. Um, <laughs> and I would say to my mum my when, when she was arguing I should stay on at school and I should go to university, I'm saying, no, I don't want to do that. I want to change the system. And my mum told me this thing that's always stuck with me. She says, son, see if you want to change the system, you first must learn how it works. Then you could change the system. Good advice. And, and yeah, yeah. it was great advice, Elliot. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up staying on at school, done some uh, hires, um, then did, went to Stirling University at the age of 17. And uh, I had that, that, I'd inherited that fire from my mum. I'd inherited that um, thirst for knowledge that my mum had got it later in her life. Because as I say, she left without any qualifications and then went on. Yeah. After being a full-time organiser with the union, 
She went on to to go to university and get a, a degree in sociology and okay. go on to become a qualified social worker. Mm -hmm. And then she began to work with the Royal Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Uh, and she used to work with abused children and oh. children that were victims of, of incest and, and uh, horrible, horrible line of work, yeah, but yeah. a very necessary of line course. of work. Um, and she, I'm just, she, sorry, Tommy, sorry. I, I just really want to quickly ask you, I mean, um, I know that it was quite recently the anniversary, two year anniversary of your dad's yes. passing. I mean, with your mum being of that sort of character, you know, a very um, empathetic, but quite um, passionate activist, what was your dad's character like? Well, he, my, my, my dad, I always describe it earlier as my mum was political with a massive big P. <laughs> My dad was political with a small p. Okay. Because what my dad did is, you know, my, I've got wonderful memories, wonderful, wonderful memories. My dad used to take me to the football. Um, he had two daughters, uh, and then I was the third child, and I was a boy. And from the age of eight and nine, my memories of the Celtic supporters bus was going to see Celtic all over the country. Uh, hmm. Managed to see seven in a row, eight in a row, nine in a row. Was at all the games, used to go on the St. Brendan's supporters bus. However, by the time I got to about 10, um, I started playing football and a, a neighbour in, in Pollock, where I was brought up, mm -hmm. had seen me playing in the wee grass triangle across from my tenement building and, and Mr Little's name was, and he said, son, you, you're quite good, you should come and play for Pollock United. Uh, and I didn't know anything about them, but uh, they were having trials and, and invited and lo and behold, I, I started to, to play with Pollock United. And the wonderful thing is, Sometimes I regret it in some respects, I suppose, but I don't think my dad would allow me to regret it. My dad then started coming to watch me instead of going to watch Celtic. Um, right, okay. And then within less than a year, he became involved in running Pollock United. So he would run the football team. Okay. My, my mates all, always make the point that that was the only way I got a game was because my dad <laughs> ran the team uh, and I helped wash the strips, which was all true. Um, I used to say, I'm not helping you, Dan, unless you pick me for the team. Uh, but my dad then started running the under 10s, under 11s, and he ran the team right through the under 18s. Um, and then he, he was elected the president of Paul United Boys Club, who at that time had like nine different age groups of, of, of teams. Wow. And it was an institution Jeez. in Pollock. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, we used to train two nights a week. We had discos every Friday. We had the games on Saturdays. We had some games on Sundays. <laughs> it was something that kept us gainfully employed off the streets. Yeah, it gave yeah. lots of youngsters an outlet. There's been so many professional footballers have come through the ranks of Paul United, Tommy Coyne, uh, Celtic Ireland, uh, Dave McPherson, uh, Rangers Heart Scotland, Billy mm -hmm. Davis, Rangers and on to be a manager, John Mellon more, more recently, uh, loads and loads, scores and scores of, of, of guys went on through Paul United, through the hard work my dad and my uncle, his brother, uh, put in, mm -hmm. and all the other parents, all did it voluntary, not, not, not a single penny. Mm -hmm. So my dad, although wasn't he political? Where well, a big P was political, where a small P, because it was community uh, based. It was the micro politics, yeah, yeah. whereas my mum was much more the macro uh, uh, politics. Mm -hmm. So they, they made absolutely fantastic parents. I, I think my stability in life, my, my mental stability, my empathy with people, my confidence, I think all comes from what I was given as a child, the love that I was surrounded with, the way I was in, embraced as, as a child. I always knew that um, I, I had somewhere to turn. I could speak to my dad, I could speak to my mum. Now, great parents, hmm. 
not a very good couple. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they began to grow apart. Uh, mm. they, they came together, as so many did in those generations, very young, in their early 20s. They had three wonderful children um, who have all went on to uh, do wonderful things in life. Um, but they grew apart. Uh, and when I was 17, uh, the year I went to university, they separated and uh, my dad went to stay with his mum in Penalee in, in Glasgow and my mum um, stayed there in, in, in Pollock for a while before moving to Deniston. So um, they remained friends. I mean, it was never a, there was never animosity. Mm. <laughs> the funny thing is when it came to Christmases and, and weddings and any big uh, event, they were always there, the, the, not together, they wouldn't travel together, but they were always together and sharing gifts and all the rest of it. Yeah, so there was yeah. never an animosity, which was great yes, because some people, some people's lives are scarred <clears> when, <throat> when couples break up. There's yeah. sometimes a lot of anger, maybe even some violence, and, mm. and, it, and it can scar yeah. um, youngsters. Um, but I was fortunate not to have that. So I had wonderful parents, but they weren't a particularly wonderful couple. Okay, okay. Very interesting. So in terms of your political views, I mean, you identify, I suppose, as a socialist. What does socialism mean to you and how were your um, your views kind of influenced? What shaped the way that you, you see things? Well, my mum, obviously, as I say earlier, the, the mm -hmm. fact that she was involved in the trade unions, the fact that she was um, trying to look after the interests of ordinary workers, people who were exploited, super exploited, mm -hmm. the fact that she was involved with the battered wives movement and, and trying to always fight for justice for people who, who required it and required help. Mm -hmm. I suppose that's always been at the, the, the base of my politics, always. There was one wee incident, you know, sometimes things stick in your mind and you don't know why they stick in your mind. Um, but I remember as a kid, uh, I was only eight years of age um, during the, the 72 minor strike and, and I, I used to have my wee soldiers, my wee plastic soldiers, the Germans and the British soldiers as you were brought up to mm -hmm. uh, be very simplistic about things and I used to set them up and fight each other. And I remember this night, um, I, I'd set all my soldiers up and the lights went out and, and I, I couldn't see and my mum had candles and brought the candles in. And I was dead upset, I couldn't play with my soldiers. And my mum sat me down and told me about the minor strike and about these men that uh, travelled deep into the ground to extract coal, which was then used to create electricity, which gave you light, uh, and how these men, it was a very dangerous job, very dirty job, very hard job, and they weren't getting paid very good wages, and these men were fighting for better wages, and that's why we didn't have any light in the house. Mm. Now, it's fair enough, I can look back now and, and, and I know how it affected me in terms of it's always given that sense of injustice and fighting for the underdog. Mm -hmm. At the time, I remember being still upset because I couldn't get playing with my soldiers. <laughs> However, <laughs> the point is, it's that, that whole point about seeds and the seeds that get sowed in life and what they do in later life. And the wee seed was planted there about what's right and what's wrong, justice and justice. Uh, and from that, I went on um, at school, not through modern studies, to always be on the, the side of the civil rights movement, to be inside of the ANC fighting apartheid, inside of the IRA fighting against the troops. Mm -hmm. I was always on the side of the underdog against authority and against big business. And I took that on um, in, in my university life. I was very, very nervous, I have to say, when I went to university. I was the first one in my family to go to university. I was probably the first one in my street. I, I, I stayed in a uh, Linton Hall Road in Pollock, which was just a 
common working class scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we weren't expected to go to university, let's put it like that. Mm-hmm. And I was petrified I was going to let people down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember going to university and, and, and I think to myself, I'm not going to fail here. I'm, 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 and I stuck in at the books and I read and I read and I read. And this was the first time I'd really read them. I and mean, I try and tell my daughter now, who's 13, I try and get her to read uh, books and novels and it's hard to get them to read. Yeah. But I wish, in retrospect, that I had done that, right? <laughs> uh, because it was later in life that I started to do that. And I discovered Marx. Yeah. You know, I started <laughs> reading. Uh, Capital itself, but also other people's commentary on on Marx, and I it was just like, oh, I'd been blind, you know. It, it, it was like, wait well, a minute, this makes sense now, you know. The how does capitalism work? Because if, if you look at the basics of Marxism, mm-hmm. you know, you've got slavery. How does it work? Well, it's fine. Somebody's a slave and somebody owns a slave. <laughs> so they make their money by owning a slave. The yeah. exploitation's clear. Uh-huh. You then move, move to feudalism. How does that work? Well, somebody owns a land and somebody's got serfs that work in the land. So the person that owns a land exploits the serfs. Very clever, very easy. Then you get to capitalism. Oh, wait a minute, where's the exploitation? Somebody works and somebody owns the industry and the business. And they pay them for it, so it's a, it's a contract, it's a fair contract, you know, it's free market capitalism, where's the exploitation? And it took Marx to study capitalism, mm-hmm. to develop surplus value, to look mm. at, wait a wee minute, it's actually not a fair contract because the surplus value that the workers add into the product is much beyond what he's getting paid for the wages. There's the exploitation. That's the magic of Marx. It's what he's done. That you, yeah. That's the scientific um, basis of Marx. And I never, never come across it until I started to read it and thought, oh, wait a wee minute, this makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And from, the, from that day, uh, from, from that period onwards, I've always considered myself a Marxist. Oh, really? Uh, okay. I, I, I don't consider myself a dogmatic Marxist. I always okay. remember Marx himself saying um, before he died that the one thing he was insure, sure of was that he wasn't a Marxist because people had bastardised so much what he stood for and that they, yeah. they had interpreted him so literally uh, and, and, and without an understanding, as Marx himself said, the only thing that's constant in life is change. Hmm. Things evolve, things change all the time. Mm-hmm. And what you have to understand is the process of change, the process of that evolvement, um, and that those that try to be economic determinists about Marxism, oh, this is how revolutions will happen. A will follow uh, B, and then it'll be C, and then there'll be D. Yeah. I'm sorry, that's not life. That's not the way it works. Uh, people mm-hmm. then say, oh, Marx was wrong because the first big revolution was in Russia. Uh, and yeah. it, Marx said it would be in a developed capitalist state because uh, the capitalism would reach the, 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 the end of its progression and then people would realise the only way to go forward was to get rid of capitalism. Look what's happened, it's happened in Russia and there's undeveloped and agrarian and backward. Oh, I'm sorry, but revolutions aren't exact sciences. Yeah, They're going yeah, to yeah. happen in different countries and different regions in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that um, armed surrection takes place in Cuba or Nicaragua doesn't mean an armed insurrection is going to take place in Britain, for instance, or yeah. Scotland or Ireland or whatever. You know, uh, different countries will will arrive at the way of of reaching a progressive form of society in a different form. Yeah. Marxism, to me. I sometimes describe myself as a magpie Marxist. Okay. In other words, I take 
what I think is the good bits yeah. and I apply them and I use them but I reject the idea that is some form of magic potion that makes you uh, be able to understand and explain everything. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I've read the Communist uh, Manifesto and um, he, it, it, somebody said that it can be summed up in one sentence um, and it's the abolition of private property. So taking a sort of macro view, I mean, if you were to, uh, you know, someone waved a magic wand and you could just reset up society tomorrow, what would it look like? Who would have the sort of the control over things? Would you abolish private property? I mean, what would society kind of look like? I think it's stupidity itself to talk about abolishing okay. private property. Okay. I, I think what we have to have is a mature um, and a, a, an adult view of society. And the idea that all bikes are going to be owned by the state and, and, and all taxis are going to be owned by the state and all ice cream parlours are going to be owned by the state is just arrant nonsense. Okay. However, the idea that you come into this room and put down a switch to turn on the light, which everybody has to do, mm -hmm. and somebody private makes money out of that. You go to the toilet and flush it, and somebody <laughs> makes money out of that. The idea that buses and trains, which are essential to life, the, the idea that oil, which is essential to life, the idea that the very land that, that, that we rely on is owned privately, those are the things that I would make sure become public assets. So the essentials of life, okay. your, your electricity, your gas, your water, your transport, these are the big levers of the economy. And personally, I don't think they should be in private hands. I think they should exist mm. to be part of the commonwealth. Okay. Now, within that commonwealth, you'll have some people who work in these industries, who work in what, is, what will be known as publicly owned industries, and they'll make their, their, their living through those industries. There'll be others who will work in hairdressers because they're particularly good at hairdressing. There'll be others that work in cafes because they, they enjoy uh, making good food. Yeah. You don't own publicly the cafes <laughs> okay. or the hairdressers, come on. So you yeah. have to have a very adult view of public versus private and make sure that you've got the mix right. That's what's what's important. So okay. the idea of a mixed economy isn't something you should shirk away from. The, mm -hmm. the abolition of all property, it might make a yeah. good soundbite, yeah. but, it, but it's, it's nonsense. <laughs> uh, and I think a country like Cuba is, is trying to come to terms with these things, a country that since 1959 against all of the odds, mm -hmm. blockaded by the most powerful nation on the planet, undemocratically so, they've tried to crush the dream of socialism in, in Cuba. They failed, they failed miserably. Mm -hmm. However, they have curtailed the ability of that country to develop its full potential. And Cuba definitely has a lot of problems, still has a lot of problems, um, poverty, um, low wages. But go to Cuba and ask people about their health service. Go to Cuba and try and find somebody that's illiterate. Mm. It's been eradicated. Mm. They now have a higher life expectancy than America. They now have a literacy rate that's top of the world. <laughs> they now export doctors and nurses. Mm -hmm. That to me shows you in that one kernel if that's what can be done in a poor country, yeah. embracing the principles of socialism, uh -huh. what could be done in a rich country? Hmm. Um, and that's why they're trying to crush it. Um, but what they've came to, to terms with is they started off with wanting everything to belong to the state, including 
taxis and, and restaurants and things. Now they've came to an arrangement whereby there's a mix and the economy's been allowed to grow through that. And some people uh, do have private property. Some people do have their own businesses. Yeah. I, I don't fear that. I, okay. I, I think what you have to do is you have to have regulation, you have to have controls. Um, people say, oh, you don't want to over-regulate things. Well, wait a wee minute. The fact that we never over-regulated the banks led us to a massive crash in yeah, 2008. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. like, oh, no, you don't want over-regulation. I'm sorry, but we had to bail them out to the tune of £1 trillion pounds mm -hmm. because they got away with what they were wanting to do. It's true. You know, sunbed parlours are more regulated than the banks were. Uh, you know, so from my yeah. point of view, we have to have a proper adult approach to modern socialism. And that means there is inevitably going to be a mix between public ownership and private ownership. And the big concerns, the most important concerns in life, like oil, like gas, like electricity, uh -huh. like transport, should be publicly owned and okay. run on the basis of maximum safety, mm -hmm. maximum uh, output for the ordinary people. Why? Why do we charge people, for instance, using buses and, and trains? We're going on about the environment. We have to try and, and, and get people, more people using public transport. Great. Make it free. Mm -hmm. Why don't you make the buses and, and, and the trains free? Why don't you publicly subsidise them through public ownership of the oil? If we right, had okay. public oil and we had the reserves, I hear people saying in, about Scotland, oh, look at the Scotland, the, the independent Scotland. Uh, the, the price of oil's fallen and independent Scotland will co would collapse. Yeah. Right now, we've got 8% of the revenue from, from the oil because that's the share that we get from the UK government. Imagine having 100%. <laughs> So the price of oil might fall, yeah, your revenue might be, be down, but it would be uh, 20, 30 times more than what you're currently getting anyway. Yeah. And from the revenue of the generation of things like gas and electricity and oil, you can then invest in health and education and transport. Got you. And, you know, yeah. when people talk about socialists, oh, they want a higher minimum wage. I think, you know, £10 an hour should be the absolute um, um, minimum wage so that people don't have to rely on benefits to top up their wages. I hate the expression, the, the, the worst expression in the 20th century, 21st century, um, is the working poor. The mm. working poor. Everybody thought, oh, the working poor. It is an oxymoron. It is, yeah. How can you be working and poor? <laughs> you know, you, you've got your point. Tesco's, you've got your Morrison's, you've got your Asda's. They get subsidised. You know, they're multi-billion pound corporations and the state subsidises them because we allow them to pay their workers low wages but we'll give them working families tax credit, we'll give them housing benefit, we'll give them council tax benefit, we'll subsidise low wages. Wouldn't it be better if you imposed a wage structure, made it law, mm -hmm. that every employer must pay a minimum living wage that allows everyone to exist and have a good standard of life and see if somebody comes to you and says, cafe, taxi business, some small business comes and says, listen, Tommy, that's all right, you're talking about all this high wages. I can't afford that. I, we, don't, we don't have enough of a turnover. I can't afford to pay my staff that. Well, what we do as a state is we subsidise that business. Instead of subsidising the individual yeah, through yeah. housing benefit and working families tax, why don't we subsidise the business? Now, the business comes to me and says they can't do it. I want to see the books. So obviously, I don't, I don't just take the word for it. Yeah, yeah. But right now, you put an individual through a means test. You know, That's individuals true. don't just get benefits. They go through a means test. 
subject businesses to that type of means test. Mm -hmm. So when your Asdas and your Morrisons come and say, oh, I'm sorry, but we need subsidy, I say, ha ha, I'll be right. What are you doing? Two billion pounds profit on your bike. You're paying proper wages. Yeah, And yeah. the beauty of that, Elliot, and this is where <laughs> one of the wonderful terms that I remember from my economics degree at uh, Stirling was the marginal propensity to consume. Now, it sounds like a mouthful, but what is it really? And what it is really is the understanding that there is a law of economics. And that is that the rich, if you give them an extra pound, don't spend it. They yeah. put it in the bank. So it's, it's, it's useless giving them an extra pound. Hmm. The poor or the average paid, you give them an extra pound, they spend it. Mm -hmm. Because there's things they need. They're yes. nowhere near satisfying their needs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Imagine from a macro point of view, mm -hmm. you give your workforce better wages. What are they going to do with the better wages? They're going to spend it. Uh, yeah. So the local businesses, the, the white goods industry, they're all going to have extra demand. Yeah. It's going to be a virtuous cycle in your economy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. paying workers better wages leads to more revenue because you get more tax from them. And then you've got more money to spend in education and health. And yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. virtuous cycle. Yeah. It, it's not, honestly, it's not rocket science. And we no. have to... <laughs> Stop allowing the tooth sayers of doom and gloom who say, oh, the only way to proceed is austerity. What a lot of bollocks. Because <laughs> um, austerity is blaming and punishing the poor yeah, for the yeah. mistakes of the rich. And why should that happen? Why should we accept it? So yeah. um, <laughs> socialism, quite frankly, is the future. Not everybody will accept it yet, hmm. but mark my words, it is the future. Yeah. I, I, I have to say myself, politically, I am, I'm kind of conflicted in many ways. I, I personally would identify as being a centrist. Um, I would say on the social spectrum, I probably lean a bit left. I do think it's unfair that poor people have to suffer. Part of me also thinks that, or wonders, and it'll be interesting to get your take on this. I'll, I've got a couple of quotes that I'll read. I didn't say them, so don't hate me. <laughs> a society that puts equality ahead of freedom will end up with neither. Democracy aims uh, of equality and liberty. Socialism desires equality in constraint and servitude. So in order to, uh, uh, there's a couple of things here. In order to redistribute um, wealth in society at the moment, do you have any sort of uh, ideas around that? But also, does it seem fair to penalize people on their success if they have accumulated enormous wealth, at what stage do hmm. you do you kind of think, right, Mr. Bezos, that's great, although you're, um, you know, your, uh, your wealth's probably going to take a hit <laughs> um, in the near future. Do you advocate putting a cap on people's uh, net worths or, you well, know, let, I know, I know there's a lot to kind of... Let, let's uh, look at Mr. Duke of Buclou. Okay, okay, so okay. I, I am poaching uh, on Mr. Duke of Buclou's land and um, the gamekeeper comes, he's uh, employed by the Duke of Buclou, and he comes and uh, he tells me to get off the land uh, with the threat of a big double-barreled uh, shotgun, probably. Uh, and I say, no, I'm, I, I'm, I've got every right to fish here. I've got every right to hunt here. The, the, the fish uh, that I catch and the game that I kill, I'm going to, I'm going to eat it's, it's for the sustenance of... My family and uh, the gamekeeper on behalf of the Duke of Buclou says, I'm sorry, no, you're not allowed. This is the Duke of Buclou's land. And I say, well, how did he get it? <laughs> and he says, his dad gave him it. 
And I'll say, how did his dad get it? Oh, his granddad gave him it. Mm-hmm. How did his granddad get it? Oh, he fought for it. And I take off my jacket and I say, well, come on, I'll fight you for it. Where do you stop, Elliot? You yeah. know, you talk about accumulation of wealth. Where did these people get the land that they own? Mm. They inherited it through unfair laws, through an unfair system of distribution. And to my mind, I'm not saying that people can't have their own house. But you know what? I think we should cap it at two houses. <laughs> right? You know, there's no need for three and four and five houses. I think we should cap the ownership of land at the ability to earn a living from it if you've got a farm or whatever. The idea that you own the landed estates and you can control whether people walk on the land and you desire that there should be grouse shooting on this land Mm. rather than forestation. When all of the economic studies show that a grouse use of land is the least efficient, least economically beneficial use of land. Who who, who gets to decide how the land's used for Mm. the least beneficial to society form? No, no, I'm sorry. Land should be put to the use for the benefit of society, not for the benefit of individuals. And therefore, my attitude to this whole argument about equality Mm -hmm. versus freedom Mm -hmm. is that we have to accept the, the idea that we can pay everybody the same is garbage, right? Let's, let's put that to one side. Okay. However, everybody goes on about a minimum wage. What about a maximum wage? <laughs> what, what about looking at from another point of view? Instead of looking the problem of poverty, why don't look at the problem of riches? Because you have got a chasm, mm-hmm. a Niagara. Mm-hmm. The gap between the rich and poor now yeah. is obscene and grotesque. You want to have a society where there's a floor below which nobody falls, a ceiling above which nobody goes. But see, between the floor and the ceiling, of course you'll have a differential. Mm-hmm. How could you possibly determine that somebody that spent 10, 12 years of their lives to develop their medical understanding and become a top-notch brain surgeon <laughs> is going to get paid the same as someone who's trained to be a bus driver or a train driver and who would accept that their skills uh-huh. are less than someone who's a brain surgeon? Yeah. No one in their right mind is going to say, oh, no, I should deserve the same wages. Of course they're not. Mm. However... Where do you start here? Mm-hmm. Do we go at 15 to 1? If your minimum wage was set at £10 an hour, then should your maximum wage be set at £150 an hour? Well, wait a minute, could somebody live in £150 an hour? I'm sorry, aye, they could. <laughs> it's certainly if you had a society where things like gas and electricity and water were publicly owned yeah, and therefore yeah. you were supplying them at uh, cheap, perhaps even free, rates Mm -hmm. so that your standard of life would be determined by your level of income, but your outgoings, your expenditure would be reduced because the state would own these big assets Mm -hmm. and therefore the expenditure in order to to live would be less. So the more wages you're getting, the more you're getting to keep as well. Mm -hmm. I, I fail to accept that we can have a society where we don't have the idea of a maximum as well as a minimum. We can't have the same. Of course we can't have the same. Mm-hmm. We're all different. You know, what a horrible life it would be if we're all the same. Mm. You've got to have diversity, accept diversity, but within limits. 
Uh, and that's where I have this argument, the, the libertarian argument, oh, you, you can't have socialism and freedom. Nonsense, nonsense. But the idea that rights are uh, without limitations, it's, it's, it's just rubbish because your right um, to fire a gun obviously is going to cut across my right to life and liberty because mm -hmm. you shouldn't be allowed to fire the gun at me. You're, you're going to have to curtail that right. Rights by their very nature have got to have an expression, but they've also got to be controlled. Uh, and, and the word control, obviously, Stalinism, yeah, Soviet yeah. Union, gulags. Yes. It's very conveniently used to try and prevent the whole idea of anything else different. But Russia tried to build a socialist society on the back of a backward country. They tried to build a new world in a nation where people couldn't even read and write. Mm. That was the problem. The mm -hmm. problem was the shortages. The problem was the, the difficulty they had in trying to become a superpower and try to become a socialist state without having the means to build that socialist state. We can go back to that Marxist argument. Marx always envisaged that socialism would develop in a capitalist state that had reached the limit of its development. It would be the most developed, so it would be a Germany or it would be a Britain or something like that, mm -hmm. where they had developed their means of production. Soviet Union didn't have the means of production. That yeah, was the yeah. problem. However, here's the thing that you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That backward agrarian country mm -hmm. in 1917 became a superpower by the 1950s through a planned economy. Compare that backward country of Russia to India, to Africa. Compare mm -hmm. it to other comparable countries at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. They didn't become superpowers. Mm -hmm. Soviet Union became a superpower. Now, they became a superpower, and unfortunately, there was a lot of over overheads, unacceptable overheads. People's lives and liberties were restrained, um, and obviously opponents were um, taken to task for being opponents. That, they would argue, was necessary because of the problems and the barriers they confronted at that time. We don't confront those barriers. We, we've got the ability to send people to space. We've got the ability to conquer all of the hunger, mm. all of the inequality. We've got 26 individuals today, 26 individual billionaires who have got a greater combined wealth than half the world's population. <laughs> yeah. 26 people <laughs> got more wealth than three and a half billion people. That is just unacceptable. Mm. We have to tackle that. Yeah. And therefore, for me, um, socialism and the idea of socialism, people have been too ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, it never worked in the Soviet Union. It can't that's, work at that's all. That's the most common argument I hear. You know, the likes of sort of um, right-wing economists, mm. Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell, etc., will always say, look at the, the past results of socialism as an argument to kind of condemn Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I think... I. I to me, I think it's pure ill. I, I, yeah. I, I think it's intellectually redundant. I, I think it's very lazy for them. But okay. it's also about what agenda are they pursuing. Because yes. they, they, these people are not independent observers. There's no such thing as an independent observer. They are there to bat for capitalism. They are there to bat yes. for the free market. Yeah, and that's what they do. Yeah. Um, I say something, I'm biased. They say something, well, that's independent. That's, you know, they're, they're, they're being rational. <laughs> rational my arse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, th this is uh, maybe a bit contentious. Um, there was a 
a quote, uh, I'm, I'm going to quote somebody saying this, it was in the Times recently, and it says, uh, Russia is sowing a division and, uh, sorry, Russia is sowing division and confusion in the Scottish independence campaign, the SNP's defence spokesman has warned. Now, you know, being somebody who is passionately pro-independence, why would somebody say that about um, like Sputnik and Russia today? What, what, does, what do they think their agenda is? Why would they think that? <laughs> I'm not sure, Elliot. I, 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 obviously, the person who said it uh, would, would would have to defend yeah. what they've said. Yeah. Um, I, I do think it's important to differentiate between the SNP and the independence movement. I mean, the SNP yes. is a political party and it has got uh, some fine representatives, mm -hmm. but it's also got some dodos. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's just the reality. I was in the parliament for eight years mm -hmm. uh, and I came across some fine uh, SNP MSPs uh, and I came across some individuals who you wouldn't want to run a bath, never mind run a country. So from, from, from my point of view, the independence movement is large and grand and multi-layered. SNP is one political party. Yes, they may be the biggest political element of the independence movement, but I always had this argument during 14 where people would say to me, I'm not voting independence, I don't like Alex Salmond. Yeah, I'm no voting independence. Argument. I don't like the SNP. Like, yeah, yeah, of course. And, and, and I would try and make the, the comparison. Where are we minute here? You, you, you need a new house. You've got a couple of wains. You're in a, a one-bedroom flat. Somebody shows you a two-bedroom uh, house with a lovely garden. Uh, you go and see it. You've got the budget. You can afford it. But it's got horrible wallpaper. So you say, ah, I'm not taking it. <laughs> How much garbage is that? <laughs> You take the house and you change the wallpaper. Okay. And that's what independence is about. You don't look at the current political leadership. You don't say, oh, well, that's the way it's always going to be. You say, wait a minute, here's what we want. We want the right to get the government we vote for. Is that too much to ask? That's just the norm in society. We want independence. Once we get independence, if we don't like the political leaders, change them. That's what you do. Um, and that's what I tried to convince people of. And let's face it, we came from nowhere in 2014 where we were sitting in the low 20s uh, to 45%. Um, you know, uh, the, the weekend before, I don't know if you remember, the weekend before there was a rogue YouGov poll that the Times gave a lot of uh, coverage to, I think, deliberately um, mm. to warn people. Uh, and I had is it 51%. Yeah. Um, so uh, you could say that we almost, uh, we almost won, mm -hmm. um, but I'm absolutely convinced that we're going to win next time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the fact that so many young people uh, backed independence and still back independence mm -hmm. shows you that we've got the future. Why are you so passionate about Scottish independence? Because I, I suppose it, it comes from a socialism. <laughs> my, my, my desire uh, is to see independence as the beginning of the journey. Okay. Some other people see independence as the end of the journey, you know, that, that, that it's an end. Yeah. I see it as a means, okay. a means to an end. Because I think once you have, given the social political um, situation in Scotland, I think once you've got an independent Scotland, there is the ability to raise socialist ideas. Public ownership of the land, public ownership of the oil, public ownership of the gas, the electricity. I think those ideas will be popular. Okay. And I think, unlike Cuba, who tried to build socialism 
on the back of a backward, uneducated agrarian society. Mm. We are going to try and build socialism on the back of a very modern, very educated society with an abundance of natural resources which could actually deliver a different form of society. How do you think Scotland, an independent Scotland, might look? You know, what, what do you think would happen with things like, or the major social problems? I would hope um, that we would see poverty as a crime. Yeah. Uh, we, would, we, we would see inequality as something that has to be reduced. Mm -hmm. um, the only wars that we wage will be on poverty and inequality, not in other peoples, in any other part of the planet. We would be a peaceful nation that would obviously remove completely trident. Uh, I, I think one of, the, one of the first commitments we should make in terms of an independent Scotland is that we are going to double the state pension. Now, it probably won't bring us up the Eurostat League that much because our state pension is so low compared to the rest of Europe. Mm. But double the state pension by cutting the defence budget. Cutting uh, expenditure in defence in order to put it into something that's much more socially beneficial. Those types of policies, those types of things are not going to happen overnight. We're not going to eradicate poverty the day after independence. Nothing changes the day after independence apart from the ability to change everything. That's <laughs> yeah. the point. Okay. You get the powers <laughs> to change everything. Yeah. The powers that we don't have just now. And that's why I'm so passionate about it, because we have the opportunity to build a new nation which is different from what's went before. Yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily um, support this point. I'm just going to offer it as a, as a sort of counter argument. Um, it, you know, the, the nuclear arms that you touch on, I mean, what happens if you get yourself into a situation whereby you need nuclear arms? I mean, what, what, what's, the, what's the plan B, so to speak? To suggest that there is ever a need for nuclear arms would be to argue in favour of chocolate teapots. Uh, it would be, you know, nobody says you should have an ashtray and motorbikes, right? So why would you say you need nuclear weapons? They are the most expensive form of scrap metal on the planet. Because if they're ever used, the world's over. So they're never going to get used, so why bloody pay for them? Okay. Uh, you know, I, I remember very, very vividly, I think you talked earlier there about um, coming to visit your school, and I remember mm -hmm. very vividly 2001, um, September the 11th, uh, most people remember where they were that particular day and I, I was at St Paul's High School and, and Pollock had been invited into the Modern Studies class um, and the topic was politics generally mm -hmm. uh, but one of the questions became nuclear disarmament and the fact that I had been, one of the students had talked about uh, me being arrested uh, several times and had been in jail for my um, protests against Trident etc uh, and this student had suggested, you know, um, if America didn't have nuclear weapons, then other countries would attack them. And I came back about, listen, um, that's conventional uh, warfare uh, is, is how the, these um, um, disputes are, are dealt with. Nuclear weapons uh, were used in, in Hiroshima, used in Nagasaki. There were war crimes, uh, hundreds of thousands, and then eventually millions of people suffered. Innocent civilians died. 
because of the use of nuclear weapons. They are illegal because they're indiscriminate. Geneva Convention, rules of war. If you're involved in a conflict, you're supposed to target the other combatants. You don't, com you don't target civilians. Nuclear weapons, by their very nature, target civilians. That makes them illegal under uh, uh, international law. So we shouldn't have them. And I drove away from the school, put on the radio, and of course the most powerful nation on the planet was attacked. Got the most the biggest nuclear arsenal. Mm. The, then he stopped them being attacked. Mm. So what, what, what good's your nuclear weapons then? <laughs> so from my point of view, Elliot, nuclear weapons are a complete and utter misnomer. They okay. should be, uh, obviously, you want to have them uh, decommissioned across the world. Mm -hmm. But you need to start somewhere. You mm. need to have the balls and the courage uh, to grasp the nettle and say, we're not having them. Um, South Africa get rid of them. Uh, Ukraine's get rid of them. Um, other countries say they want to get a hold of them. Um, <laughs> and the, the irony is, you, you got America and everybody saying, we need to bomb Iran because they want nuclear weapons. Well, I'm sorry, if you've got nuclear weapons, then how can you expect them not to want to have nuclear weapons? You know, the way to get rid of nuclear weapons is for you to decommission yours. And certainly, um, Scotland will be a nuclear-free independent country. Mm. I, I love hearing your views, Tommy. I, you know, it's certainly, I like that it challenges my own perspectives and my own beliefs. Um, I can't say that I necessarily agree with you on absolutely everything, but I like the fact that we can have a civilised adult discussion about it, you know? Um, I, th I think, Elder, do you know what? It's very important, you know, see when you're having debate and discourse with people, yeah. it's so important that we don't just spend time debating the one or two-tenths that you disagree with somebody. Mm. Why don't you build on the eight or ninth tenths that you agree with somebody? Yeah, you know, like movements and parties, um, societies, they tend to try and make massive issues out of the disagreements mm -hmm. instead of building on the agreements. And, and I think sometimes you need a much more positive uh, frame of mind. You know, the, the glass half full rather than the glass half empty approach is something which I've always believed in. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. It would be remiss of me not to bring this up um, during the interview, uh, just to, to kind of get your feelings on it because it's very current. Um, Brexit, uh, what would you like to see happen? What do you think is going to happen? Well, first and foremost, the European Union, in, in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, is way beyond what the original idea of a free common trading area was all about. I mean, the, the idea um, in the early uh, days of the European common market in the, the mid to late 60s was developing the ability to trade without tariffs, um, to remove barriers to trade. Trade barriers had given rise to the First World War, um, not necessarily the Second World War, but obviously dominance in markets were, were at the, the root of the Second World War as well. Um, and therefore the idea that, well, instead of having trade barriers, why don't we have a, a market within area within which um, you remove tariffs and barriers? Reasonable enough idea, except that it went to become more than that. Uh, so that from the 70s onwards, they began to build a group uh, and an organisation which wasn't just politically neutral and about economics, it became a politically uh, motivated organisation. And the truth is, go and look at the Copenhagen Treaty, if you don't believe me, um, to join the European Union now, you need to be an avowedly free marketeer. 
It's an anti-socialist club. It's there to promote capitalism. Mm. I mean, if you look at a lot of the privatizations across uh, Europe and, and, and Britain, many of them have been driven by the European Union on the back of competition treaties, on, on the back of free trade treaties. Um, so from my point of view as a socialist, I'm opposed to the European Union. I, I, I'm for co coalition and cooperation across Europe, absolutely. But Norway does quite well, it's not a member of the European Union. Switzerland yeah. does reasonably well, Iceland does okay, no members of the European Union. Scotland doesn't need to be a member of the European Union. And there is a very cogent, rational, socialist argument against the European Union, which unfortunately isn't heard. Because the BBC mm. and the other propaganda outlets, <laughs> they're not interested in that argument. They want it all to be about immigration. They want to give a platform to the Farages of the world. They want to make it a very negative, uh, derogatory argument and, and make it a chauvinistic argument. Uh, and sadly, that plays to people's insecurities and people's fears rather than having a rational argument about the, the, the pros and cons of the European Union. You look at what happened in the Brexit uh, debate, Scotland votes fundamentally, significantly, 62% to stay. I voted against. But England and Wales voted to leave. Mm. Now, they voted to leave in a referendum um, in, in uh, June of 2016. Then there is a debate in the British Parliament in February of 2017. A majority of 412, I think it was, certainly over 400, of the MPs voted to trigger Article 50. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're going to go ahead with Brexit. Then you have, in June, uh, I think it was June the 8th um, of, of 2017, you have a snap election. The Labour Party stands, vote for us, we're going to implement Brexit. Mm -hmm. Tories stand, vote for us, we're going to implement Brexit. Mm -hmm. The Lib Dems stand, Vote for us, we're going to go for a second European referendum. It's a perfectly legitimate mm -hmm. platform, up to you. Labour increased its vote by 10 percentage points. The Tories, unfortunately, although they lost uh, uh, 22 seats, they increased their vote by 4%. The only party of the main ones that lost percentage was the Lib Dems. They lost 0.5%, but they lost percentage of vote. The SNP didn't fight on that platform. <laughs> The SNP never said in 2017, vote for us and we're going to go for Brexit too. What they said was, vote for us and we'll go for Indyref too. That was their platform. So how can you go then from a referendum 16, a vote in Parliament early 17, a general election in June of 17, all of which 80% of the people of the UK, England, Wales and Scotland voted for parties that said we're going to implement Brexit mm. to then turn around and call something the people's vote. Where's, where's the people's vote? <laughs> where's the democracy there? <laughs> there is no democratic underpinning to Brexit too. Mm. None whatsoever. And yeah. the SNP, by the way, have to have a wee look at themselves. They never fought the election on a, a people's vote. They never fought on a Brexit too. The fact that they're championing it now, I don't know where they get the basis for it other than they think it's a way of reversing the result. Yeah. And yeah, maybe, but it's undemocratic. Mm. And we wouldn't like it if somebody tried to do that to us. Yeah, so yeah. from my point of view, it's wrong for the, uh, the, 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 the Remainers to say that this is a people's vote as if it's got the democratic legitimacy. And to be quite frank, the health warning is there. 
Tony Blair supports it. <laughs> if that's not enough to make you think, oh, wait a wee minute. Wait a wee The, the war criminal Blair that lied to take us into the Iraq was supporting it. That's enough of a health warning to say, oh, wait a wee minute, I'm not supporting that. Mm. So from my point of view, uh, Brexit should proceed. Um, I would like it to proceed on the, the basis of a Norway type of arrangement. As I've said earlier yeah, there, yeah. you know, Norway... Um, has a relationships, has trading agreements with Europe, but it's got its own sovereignty. Um, and an independent Scotland, I want a new referendum. Mm -hmm. You know, we will become independent and we'll be outside the European Union. Some people will say we should join. No problem with that. No problem with people saying that. Mm. No problem with a referendum on it. As long as I get the right to argue against it, and <laughs> yeah, I will yeah. do, yeah. and I'll be joined by a lot of people um, a lot of independence supporters mm. believe in sovereignty means sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, however, if I lose that vote, Elliot, in an independent Scotland, that's fine. I've lost the vote. But at least it will be Scotland that decides, mm -hmm. not England that decides for <laughs> Scotland. Yeah. That's all we want. Come on. Independence is a normal state of affairs. Mm -hmm. All we want to be is a normal nation. Yeah, yeah. I can't disagree with you. Um, if you were a betting man, would you think that we will exit the European Union um, with some sort of deal or will it be the sort of WTO uh, situation? I think there is no majority in Parliament for anything right now. That, that's the difficulty they've got. Yeah. Um, however, the reality is that people want a deal. Um, the machinations that are underway just now um, is that uh, I think May will try and buy off the DUP. Um, uh, they'll try and deal with the backstop issue, which can't be dealt with bilaterally because quite rightly, the European Union isn't going to abandon a member uh, in the shape of Ireland. Ireland says quite clearly, well, if you've left the European Union, we can't treat you as if you're in the European Union any longer. There has to be some form of recognition of that in terms of trade uh, yeah. and, and barriers. Um, so from my point of view, there's going to be a different fudge. There's going to be a different fudge. Uh, I think there could be, uh, interestingly enough, um, if Labour pushes its Norway type agreement where there's a form of customs union, there's a retention of a lot of the workers' rights, um, that could command a bigger majority in Parliament uh, and could become the order of the day. Or I wouldn't rule out a general election. I wouldn't rule out that things become so um, congested mm -hmm. and, and, and so unworkable that the only way to decide it is a general election. However, if Labour fight that general election on anything other than a Brexit platform, I think it would be a disaster for them. I think they would right. have to fight it on a Brexit platform. Um, they fought 17 on it. Mm -hmm. And people forget this. Jeremy Corbyn, the prediction was he would be finished. Everybody was laughing at him. People mm. were talking about the size of the defeat. Oh, it'll be bigger than 83. This will be a bigger embarrassment than Michael Foote suffered away back in 1983. Jeremy Corbyn's finished. Jeremy Corbyn got a 10% increase in the Labour vote. That was the biggest increase for 72 years. That was the biggest increase since Clement Attlee of 1945. That's what Jeremy Corbyn got. Mm. Now, 
you probably don't know that and most other people won't no, know that no. because the media don't want you to know no, that, no. right? Because <laughs> the media are continually undermining Corbyn. Corbyn and I have got more in common than, 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 than divides us. I mean, me and Jeremy, big, big differences in independence. But the guy's a socialist. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I agree with him nine times out of ten. Is he closer and, to communism than you are? Listen, communism's the next level up from socialism. Yeah, you, uh, you don't jump from capitalism to communism. Yeah. You need to go through socialism. Okay. So, so socialism's a, a, a halfway house. Communism's yeah. a, a level and a, an idyllic type of society that we'll never reach until we've went through socialism, in my opinion. Uh, and I think Jeremy knows that as well. But you know, Jeremy frightens the shit out of the establishment. The reason... <laughs> He's lambasted, he's anti-Semitic, come on. This mm. is a guy that's been on the streets fighting against racism and uh, anti-Semitism all his life. The idea is an anti-Semitic, it's just garbage. Mm. The media despise him. The establishment despise him because he's a danger to them. Imagine Jeremy Corbyn goes in, big business will need to pay their taxes. <gasps> you know, shock and horror. That's what they're, they're, they're worried about. So in England, I hope people vote Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. But in Scotland, I hope people vote for independence. Okay. So what about from like an individual's perspective, if people um, are concerned about Jeremy Corbyn uh, getting into power, particularly people with wealth, why do you think they would be concerned about that? Because they should be. Because <laughs> they should be. The billionaires, the millionaires, yeah, they're, they're going to get taxed more. They're going to, they're, they're, instead of five or six houses, they're only going to have three. Big wow! <laughs> I couldn't give a damn. You know, they're going to have a great life. They're going to have 10, 15 lives compared to what other people are living. They're going to have to get used to maybe only the one yacht, right? And maybe only replacing it every three years instead of every year. Come on. They're so going to have to get to grips that you cannot make an omelette without breaking eggs. You cannot have a redistribution of wealth in society without taking more off the rich. Okay. So if, if somebody has six houses, what would you, you would support, what, confiscating three of them, what would happen with the three that you took? Just this is well, like totally what, hypothetical. What, what, what I, I think there's a difference between confiscating uh, and making economic conditions such that if you want to keep your six houses, I'm going to charge you okay. the equivalent of a council tax, which makes it very, very prohibitive to have your fourth, your fifth, in your sixth house. Okay. I'm going to charge you a considerable sum for one big house. You can afford it. I'm going to charge you more for having a second big house. But you'll afford it. But see your third and your fourth and your fifth. I'm going to make it so difficult economically that if you really want to keep those houses, you can keep them. But you're going to have to pay to keep them. And you're going to have to pay a lot more than what you're currently paying. Okay. I don't, I don't hate that altogether. I think it makes sense. Yeah. You know, why, you can only, you, you can, I, I can accept that, you you know, if you're wealthy, you want uh, your urban house because you work <laughs> and you want a country house because you want to, you know, have a wee holiday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. You know, well done. <laughs> but your third and your fourth and your yeah, fifth, yeah. no, I'm sorry, I just don't <laughs> accept it. But I mean, what, what about these kind of champagne socialist figures? You get your kind of Gary Linekers and your Lily Allens and to some degree, I mean, JK Rowling, you know, preaching that we need to be more um, accepting of immigrants and all this stuff. And then it's like, well, what, what have you done to help them? What have you actually? Yeah, like, I can't, I mean, 
I, I, I would be uh, amazed if any of those people that you mentioned would call themselves socialists. I mean, you know, the the well, they're, they're to the best of my knowledge, they're Labour supporters. Well, GK's done all she can to undermine Jeremy Corbyn. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. She she despises Jeremy, and and she's put out all sorts of tweets against uh, Jeremy. She um, also is very against independence, as as, as you yeah. know. Um, I'm disappointed about that. As somebody who, uh, at one stage in her life was down in her rubbers, was, was struggling to survive. Mm -hmm. You would think she would understand the need for independence to make things better. Uh, but I don't think she would describe herself as a, as a socialist. I, I mean, some people would call themselves maybe left of centre, uh -huh. but wouldn't call themselves socialists. Okay. Um, it's a wee bit like a hokey pokey, you know, uh, one foot in, one foot out. Uh, you know, I, I don't mind this idea of, of apple pie and, 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 and sunshine for everyone's a great idea. You want me to pay for it? Uh, oh, yeah. wait a wee minute. <laughs> Does that mean I'm getting less of my money? Uh, yeah. Come on, you, yeah. you, you can't do that. You, 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 well, that's you, hypocrisy, right? That's to me, it's hypocrisy. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that these people are hypocrites because I don't know what their, their their position would be. But anyone who supports redistribution of wealth but doesn't think they should pay more if they're millionaires really is a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. Or they're naive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe a bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I've got some uh, questions for you that maybe go a little bit deeper, more sort of philosophical. Um, the first one I'm going to start with is purpose. Um, you know, in terms of yourself, reflecting back on your life, I mean, what do you kind of feel has been your, your purpose in life, so to speak? Goodness, um, Mark Twain always <laughs> talks about that, doesn't he? The, the two most in important uh, dates in your life are the, the, the day you're born and, and the day you understand why you were born. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I think uh, I would like to be known as a champion of the underdog. I would like to be known as somebody that, when confronted with injustice, tried to do something about it. Um, I've got weaknesses as, as every human being has. I, I, I don't perhaps do enough all of the time. Um, but I think if we all collectively did a little bit more to make life better, mm -hmm. then, you know, it's the old adage, if, you know, the rich and powerful are very powerful, but if we all spit the gala, we'll drown the bastards. You know, uh, we may seem as though we're on our knees, but if we rise, then, then we're very, very big and we're very, very strong, you know. Uh, hmm. So my purpose in life is to try and do what I can to effect change, to, to, to yeah. encourage change. Mm -hmm. that, and that's a, that's a, that can't be seen as a bad thing, regardless of what your stances are. I don't think that's a bad thing. Well, I suppose it depends. You know, you, you, you could you could be you could have the foot in the other, the ball in the other foot and, and be saying, "Well, I want to affect change because I want to make things less free, well, and I want to I want yeah, to make the wealthy even more powerful, and and and, and I want to restrict people's ability to um, speak out." Uh, you know. You, the, the but you're, fascists. But you're, you're doing it from what is intentioned as a positive place. Yeah, yeah, I would see it that way. Others <laughs> would philosophically argue that, oh, he's 
he's on the ground of Stalin. You know, Stalin maybe wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. I would say Stalin was a man of his time. He, he, he did what he thought was right. I think he was wrong, but he thought he was right mm -hmm. to have a nation survive. Um, I watched a program the other night, or a film the other day about the darkest hour about Churchill and you know the, the, the historians will tell us that oh Britain wouldn't have won the Second World War if it wasn't for Churchill. I disagree. <laughs> uh, I think we wouldn't have won the Second World War if it wasn't for the blood snorters and, and commitment of, of ordinary working class people. Um, but I'll tell you what, how Stalin managed to resist the might of the Third Reich uh, and if they hadn't we wouldn't have won the Second World War. Mm. Put it this way, you know, if, if, if Stalingrad had fell, the world would have fell. Mm. Um, so, although I disagree with what he did and the way he did it, I can understand that he thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. How would you like to be remembered, Tommy? What would you like your legacy to be? You know, if somebody puts a, an epitaph in my gravestone yeah. which says he tried, fine, you know, what, what more can you ask? Yeah, <laughs> good stuff. How do you define success? What does success look like to you? Hmm, well, I th I, it'll come in different packages, Elliot. I, I think success in, in your own life depends on your circumstances. Um, happiness is the single most important element of anybody's life. Yeah. And, and, Happiness is found in, in, in different drawers. Happiness is <laughs> found in different rooms and, and one person's happiness isn't going to be another person's happiness. I mean, ha different things to different people. I am remarkably blessed as a person. I, I, I've got a, a beautiful, wonderful wife. I've got a daughter that's a complete delight. Uh, I still have my mother. I have two wonderful sisters. I've got a small group of very, very close friends. I mean, what more could you ask for? I mean, I, that, that's what makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, you know, you want to be able to afford a nice holiday. You want to be able to afford a nice car. You, you, you want to be able to buy clothes whenever you need them. Of course, yeah, yeah, of course. But happiness, I think, is internal yes. more than anything else. Uh, yeah. It's not material. You know, it, some some of the most richest people in the world are the most unhappiest people in the world. So, <laughs> happiness is, is 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 not material. Happiness is spiritual. Happiness is internal. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I, I read one of your bios and you quote. It might have been Mark Twain that said this. I'm not sure. Imagine being so poor that all you have is money. <laughs> I think that may have been Zyla Twain or Oscar, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, maybe actually. Yeah, yeah. It's a great quote. I love the two of them. I mean, the, the yeah. two of them are such. Uh, wise wordsmiths, they're, they're, they're beautiful to, to, to read and just consume their wisdom, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember what, I was going to ask you a question and it's kind of um, escaped me. Um, yeah, it was, it's, I suppose, about in terms of your own life, your level of contentment and fulfilment. I think as somebody myself who can get quite animated, people sometimes conflate passion and anger, you know? And they're very different things. I mean, are you a happy person? Are you fulfilled? <laughs> Elliot, I, given what I've just said to you, how, how could you be anything other mm -hmm. than happy? I, I always try and get people to think. As a youngster, I used to go to a sports centre, um, the Bella Houston Sports Centre, which is still there in, in, in Cardonald and Glasgow. And I remember being amazed 
everything, it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, there was wheelchair basketball, right? And people would turn up, disabled people would turn up in their wheelchairs and play basketball. And I'd look at that and think, how dare people like me think I've got problems, mm -hmm. be unhappy with life? Mm -hmm. Here's people that can't walk. Mm -hmm. Physically can't walk. What are they doing? They're playing basketball, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're realising everything about life and, and they're no moping. Mm -hmm. uh, they probably go through tough times in their lives, but yeah. they're out there playing basketball. Yeah. Come on, get a grip is what I say. How dare we, we're able-bodied, my eyesight, um, my health, mm -hmm. the stuff that I gave you there about my family, mm -hmm. how dare I be unhappy? Mm. And I know it's, that's easy enough me saying this, and I don't wish in any way, shape or form to fail to recognise the barriers that some people have to happiness, mm -hmm. and the depression that a lot of people suffer. Yeah. That's very, very real. But I also ask people to think about others because yeah. it doesn't even matter what accumulation of problems you've got, somebody's going to be worse off. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody's mm -hmm. worse off. And you know what? That somebody is dealing with those problems mm -hmm. and fighting those problems and mm -hmm. trying to develop their life and develop their happiness. Mm -hmm. So I think we've always got to try and reach deep inside and consider when you're going through tough times, yeah. think about the tough times that other people are going through and how they've managed to cope. Definitely, yeah. What would you say is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, Well, I've received a lot of advice through through the years, particularly, you know, my mum, who, as I said, he was a big influence on me, who's mm -hmm. has always told me to try and be true to yourself. Um, if you if you can stand up for what you believe in, then perhaps others will believe in you. Um, mm. And I think, you know, people talk, for instance you go and make a speech and people sometimes say to me, oh, I think it's amazing, Tommy, you don't seem to use notes and you seem to just speak without any prompting. And I sometimes make the point, I say, well, actually, I do a lot of studying, I do a lot of research, but the reason I can speak generally without notes is because I believe in what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not making it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not speaking on behalf of somebody else. It's yeah. in here mm -hmm. and it's in here. <laughs> so what I'm doing is articulating what's in my heart, what's in my brain. Who needs notes for that? Yeah. I turn up at debates sometimes <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I, I look at some of these politicians and I think to myself, see if it wasn't for the civil servants writing their speeches, they wouldn't be able to speak. <laughs> I, I, I feel like <laughs> screaming at them. What do you think? Yeah, Never yeah, mind yeah. what's written down in your wee prompt card. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Because that's what people want to hear. Yeah, they might yeah. not agree with what of you course. think. Yeah, yeah. But by Christ, they're going to appreciate the honesty and yes. the integrity yes. that comes out from your heart yeah. than what's been written down uh, and you've yeah, been told yeah. to be on message. You know. Mm -hmm. And I think we need more politicians with the ability and the guts mm -hmm. to say what they believe. Love it, love it. If you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? 
اورا شقدونا هاي فو 20 يورو I would probably, although I told you when I was 17, I started to do a lot more reading. Um, a lot of my reading was very course related. Okay. Um, I went on to do my dissertation at university, believe it or not, in Marx's labor theory of value. So <laughs> right. a lot of people used to laugh at me when I started reading Capital and, <laughs> and, and uh, my first year at university. It actually worked well for me because by the time I got to fourth year, I was able to do a dissertation on it. and. Uh, I enjoyed it, but I was I was twenty during the minor strike. Uh, proudest moment of my life was being elected the picket bus organizer for um, Stirling University. Um, we started to go and support the miners. We used to go travel from Stirling Uni down to the Stirling Miners Welfare at six in the morning to go on the buses to go to Castle Hill Colliery and, uh, and sometimes some of the other uh, collieries um, in, in Fife. And uh, after a few weeks, because at first the miners were a bit suspicious of these students, but then I got to know them all and coming from a working class household, they all came from working class areas, many of them um, came from the Raplock and, and, and Stirling itself and therefore they, they had a lot in common with us. And after a few weeks, instead of us going to meet them, they came to pick us up in the uni. Okay. Uh, and I became known as, I, I became elected the picket bus organiser. So it was my job to let everybody know what time the picket buses were coming to get us and all the rest of it. <laughs> and for a whole year, I became consumed with that strike and support. I was arrested during the strike uh, several times and um, became very passionate. Um, I was also trying to write my dissertation as well but that was much more important for me uh, mm -hmm. than my dissertation was. Um, so what advice would I have given myself as a 20-year-old? I'm not sure I'd have done anything differently earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I look back at what I, I did as a 20-year-old and I think I'd have done the same thing. Yeah. Um, the only advice I'd have probably given myself would have been sporting advice because I always wanted to be a footballer. Um, and I, I played um, regularly right through my 20s. I, be, I became semi-professional um, at the age of 18, um, playing for Larkhall Juniors. Um, so the only advice I'd give myself would probably be in, my, in the sporting field, and that would have been to understand the game more. I okay. wish huh. I knew then what I know now okay. about tactics um, and the use of ability and use of the ball. Okay. Uh, in those days, I was just a very young, fit Zulu warrior. My, my manager, he, 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 he dubbed me the Zulu warrior um, <laughs> because I used to, used to run about around the park, get into all sorts of tackles and try to win the ball. And I wish I'd thought more about the game. So mm -hmm. if I'm... If I'm searching for anything different that I would have done in my life, it would have been um, to be a better footballer. Um, okay. But then again, if I'd been a better footballer, I might have became a footballer and yeah. I wouldn't have became involved in politics and things. So everything weighs up in your life. And I, I, I think uh, I've tried to be true to the advice that my mum gave me, to, to be true to yourself. And I've always tried 
to stick to whatever principles I've developed. Mm -hmm. um, my principles might not be your principles. Mm -hmm. Your principles might not be my principles. Mm -hmm. But if you're honest about your principles and you try and promote peace and tolerance and understanding, um, the world will become a better place, you know? Yeah. Uh, my favourite song, the song that I was uh, married to, um, that, that, that became my anthem throughout my life, has been Imagine. Mm. Um, and the lyrics of that song, to me, sum up how I see life. You know, imagine all the people mm -hmm. living life in peace. Uh, I, hmm. I imagine uh, no possessions, I wonder if you can, uh, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man, you know, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure that I would do much different. You glad you went into politics? Yes, because I, I, I think I played a, a role in various campaigns, I played a role in the anti-poll tax campaign. Um, I never entered the campaign to lead it, but I became an elected leader of it. Uh, I played a role in the anti-water privatisation campaign. I, I played a, a role in various justice campaigns, mm -hmm. the Justice for the Glasgow 2 campaign. I, I, I played a role in the abolition of pendants and warrant sales because I, I led that bill through Parliament. Um, I, I played a role in promoting free school meals for, for, for children, um, mm -hmm. which I was scoffed at at the time, and, mm. and now everybody thinks it's a great idea. Yeah. Um, I was absolutely harangued and ridiculed for advocating uh, legalization of cannabis. And, Is that uh, right? Oh, really? uh, if, if anybody wants to consult the newspapers way back in 2002, you'll see front page stories in the Daily Record where I was uh, dubbed uh, Dopey Tommy. Seriously, um, I didn't know this. Because what happened was, um, at the time, the Daily Record ran a big campaign called Scotland Against Drugs, uh, and they wanted everybody to support their campaign. Now, it was nothing more than a market campaign, it was, yeah. because the, the hypocrisy of the Daily Record's campaign was they wanted everybody to sign their petition, Scotland Against Drugs, but every weekend they gave away free, free lager tokens, so that you bought the Daily Record on Saturday and you got free lager, and this was supposed to be Scotland Against Drugs. My experience of life mm -hmm. was that alcohol is the most damaging drug in society. Uh, absolutely, yeah. My, my experience of life was that people on super lager compared yeah. to people in cannabis, yeah. people in super lager were more, more likely to take a knife to you than people in cannabis. Absolutely. People in cannabis were only wanting to attack a fridge. <laughs> the people on, on super lager were, were, were maybe going to attack you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So the idea that I was going to sign a petition that was condoning that hypocrisy mm. was nonsense. I refused to, to, to do so. And I, I reigned against the uh, government's drugs programme. I said that it was hypocrisy. I said that we should have free cannabis, we should have heroin on prescription, um, that we should recognise drugs is not a criminal problem, drugs is a medical problem. You're not going to eradicate drugs in society. I'd been in prison by mm, that yeah, time. The yeah. idea that you were going to stop the supply of drugs in society when you couldn't stop the supply of drugs in prison. Yeah, yeah. For Christ's sake, how <laughs> stupid is that? You've got a closed society and you can't stop drugs getting in, yeah. but you're going to stop it in free society. Rubbish. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my point was prohibition was the problem, not the solution. Uh, and therefore we tackle prohibition by legalising the drug trade, regulating it, taxing it, making money out of it in mm. order to go into addiction uh, and, and medical help because some people can't control it. Uh, we know that. Mm. I'm not saying that drugs are harm-free. Of course they're not. 
But alcohol is no harm free and we, we don't make that illegal. Tobacco. Yeah, the most, yeah. most harmful drugs in society. Much, there's too much money in them to make them illegal. Well, that's why, I mean, in some respects, that's why <laughs> cannabis and cannabis uh, legality is becoming uh, <laughs> more and more to the fore now because the big drugs companies are now saying, oh, uh, wait yeah. a minute, there's, there's a buck to be made here. Obviously. Uh, when in actual fact, if proper hemp production and use of cannabis and cannabis oil was developed, yeah. there's a lot of medical. Oh, developments in yeah, medical yeah. Uh, progression there. Mm. But I was dopey Tommy for saying all this in 2002. 18 years later, everybody's saying, oh, that's a good idea. So sometimes you can be ahead of your time. Ahead of your time, Tommy, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Last question's a big one. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Um, it would probably be I probably tackled the nuclear weapon problem, right? Okay. Um, because it it does amount to solving a lot of problems. But see, people say all the time, don't they? Um, we can't afford a higher pension. We can't afford a higher minimum wage. We can't afford more expense on health, education. But I don't hear anybody saying we can't afford nuclear weapons. You know. We can't afford this military exhibition. We can't afford not to bomb Iraq. We can't afford not to bomb Afghanistan. So if you say, with a peace world peace, we're going to decommission nuclear weapons, we're going to spend less on defence and more on health and education and uh, pensions, mm -hmm. then you tackle lots of problems at once. You make the world a more peaceful place, but more importantly, you make life better for those that are living in the world today. Um, so that's probably, it's maybe a bit of a cop-out because I'm trying to solve lots of problems via one solution. Yeah. But I'm afraid the nuclear weapon question has so many spokes to it. Yes. Um, and if you tackle it, then you can tackle these other problems. Yeah. Let's prioritise health, education, not nuclear weapons, yeah. take the billions of pounds, we're talking about 200 billion pounds for God's sake, that's yeah. what the expenditure on Trident 2 is going to be. Okay. 200 billion pounds on scrap metal? Come on, mm. let's put that 200 billion into better schools, better hospitals, better pensions. Yeah, I'm just I'm trying to preempt what country's responses to that would be. It would surely be along the lines of like you see in America when they talk about um, getting scrapping guns. You know, that's uh, an impingement on our rights to have stuff to defend ourselves. Obviously, my argument would be no one in humanity has the right to obliterate other people's lives, civilians, because indiscriminate weapons mm. are supposed to be illegal under international law. Well, nuclear weapons, not their use, because they're always at a ready. Yeah. They're, yeah. Al they're always ready to be fired. Uh -huh. That's what makes them illegal. Because you cannot use a nuclear weapon and target combatants. Mm. They tackle everybody. Mm -hmm. They kill everybody. Mm -hmm. That's what makes them illegal. They're also immoral, definitely illegal, and therefore we should scrap them. <laughs> Tommy, I've loved having you here. Thank you so much for your time and uh, your perspectives. I've genuinely had, it's been like a lesson in politics and um, it's refreshing because I don't often hear you talk about some of the things that I feel that we've covered and I've really enjoyed that. So yeah, I just want to say a massive Pleasure, thank really. you. And
Pleasure, brother. <laughs> Cheers. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show, and we'll see you at the next episode.